I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caporal, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll react to the latest news out of Chile that APEC will be canceled. Breaking news on the Chile APEC summit next month. This is the summit where Xi Jinping and President Trump were supposed to get together and do a, a trade deal. What does that mean for trade in the Asia Pacific? And what does it mean for prospects of a US-China trade agreement? Plus, we'll break down two complicated issues, a new bill for Marco Rubio that would impact pension fund investment into China, and new concerns about the complicated auto rules in USMCA. All that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. We're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys, and the breaking news this morning is that Chile has canceled the planned APEC summit that was going that they were going to host in Santiago in the middle of November. And you know why that matters to the trade picture is because all eyes were on that summit as a place for Trump and Xi to meet and sign the phase one trade agreement that the administration has been touting. And so with no APEC summit, uh, what's next for the negotiations? Well, let's start out with what APEC is. Uh, APEC is a uh, group of 21 economies, including both the United States and China. Most are in Southeast Asia, but it's the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation. Uh, as they say, four adjectives in search of a verb or a noun, a noun. <laughs> in this case. Forum is the missing noun. Forum or whatever. But it, it, APEC does have an annual leaders meeting in the host country. This year, the host country is Chile. So it was the, it was the item on both President Trump and President Xi's calendar and made for a nice point at which to to declare what phase one of the negotiations is. And it was, I, I thought, a way for the U.S., to show some progress. The leaders' summit, leaders' meeting has been canceled for reasons of, uh, of security in Chile. They're, they're having some civil unrest. And so they, the Chile made the decision to cancel it. Um, uh, Bill, I don't know if you think it's consequential. I'm not sure it's consequential to the overall negotiations. It's consequential for APEC. Yes. Uh, I, it, APEC has turned out over the years to be a surprisingly important organization. Here at CSIS, we do an annual uh, pre-summit meeting. And the comment that's made, made a couple years that has always intrigued me has been that APEC uh, is strong precisely because it is so weak. Uh, it doesn't promulgate rules that everybody has to obey. It right. pr- produces guidelines and advisory uh, standards. But uh, because it's not mandatory or obligatory on the part of the partners, it allows people to be a little bit more forthcoming uh, in making arrangements. And they've done some very interesting work on, on privacy, for example, data privacy, which uh, other the, the APEC members have begun to sign up to and accept, you know, take on uh, one by one responsibilities for. It's a wonderful organization. And it's, it's too bad that it got canceled because they're, uh, they're coming up next year on the uh, 20th anniversary of what are called the Bogar, Go- Bogar Goals. Right which were uh, essentially uh, a set of principles designed to uh, produce free trade and investment in the region. And 20 years is the time for stock taking and and setting of new goals. 
uh, and there's work underway at APAC to do both of those things. And there's been a lot of progress in that area, for yes, sure. Yes, yeah, it would be a it would be a good meeting, and now it's been it's been put off for a year, which is too bad. Unfortunately, I think the media is not focusing on that at all, and they're focusing on the chance for Xi and, and Trump to sign something. And there, uh, I don't think it's going to make much difference. You know, it's it was a convenient action forcing event. They would both be in the same place at the same time. Um, there are other events if they want to get together. They can both go to the East Asia Summit if they want to, uh, or they can invent a meeting. You know, we can. Uh, he can come to Mar-a-Lago again, or Trump can go somewhere, anywhere. There's no, I mean, it was an artificial uh, uh, meeting, a deadline for that purpose, and there was some doubt being cast as recently as yesterday, which was Tuesday, uh, over whether the agreement would even be ready. Uh, by that date. Anyway, now my guess was that if the two presidents wanted to sign something, there would be something to sign. That's usually what happens. The bureaucracies pick up the pace and, and produce something. Uh, but, you know, this means it may take a little longer, but uh, there will still be a phase one. Uh, and at some point, there will still be a signing. Do you think this kind of plays into China's hands a little bit if you believe that they're really just trying to wait out the administration? Uh, foot drag and not really commit to any big structural changes? Well, it w- probably works to their advantage in that sense, but you can't blame it on them. No. <laughs> I mean, I mean the, this is the, the Chilean decision. The pressure's off, but it wasn't, they didn't cancel, but the Chinese didn't cancel the meeting. It does reduce pressure on, on the Chinese for specific deliverables. Right. And can't it, blame it on Trump either, actually. No. For no, once. It's, it's, it's one something is that happened in totally, South America. Totally, well, maybe they, uh, can do, uh, yeah. they can do Mar-a-Lago 2.0 and make nice. It was uh, Trump Doral now, not Mar-a-Lago. Oh, apologies. <laughs> uh, the, the other issue, um, you know, and I think one of the reasons why folks were some folks were so focused on the potential signing of of the phase one agreement is uh, some new data that's come out recently that farm bankruptcies are at their uh, highest rate since 2011. They're up 24% year on year. Uh, And there's also new data that shows that 40% of farm revenue this year will come from uh, trade aid, that's that's the trade bailout, uh, disaster, uh, money, insurance, crop insurance, et cetera. And so, you know, we're in a situation now where there's more uncertainty for farmers, et cetera. But you all, you both seem pretty confident that a phase one deal eventually will be reached. Well, yes, but there remains the question of how much difference it's going to make. There was another graph making the rounds that said if they buy $20 billion, that is actually less than what they used to be buying. Right. Uh, the peak year, I think it was 20, something over $25 billion. So, you know, one of the great mysteries of this was when they announced it, the, the word was that they were, the Chinese were going to buy 40 or $50 billion worth of agriculture. Well, if that's going to be in one year, that's a big deal and, and probably impossible. But they never specified. They never specified the time period. If it's two years, that's what they used to do. Yeah. Uh, if it's three or four years, it's less than what they used to do. So this is not necessarily a, a big victory. Yeah, look, the pain in the farm community has been evident for some time. And a couple of the expert guests we've had on the trade guys, Blake Hurst of the Missouri Farm Bureau and Angela Hoffman of Farmers for Free Trade, have both talked about, you know, this is five or six straight years of declining farm income and that this is the time we would expect to see bankruptcies begin and now to through the spring. Which is what's happening. And the 
political comment has been that, um, you know, uh, in response, uh, we've been asking people that, you know, the great mystery here is that, you know, farmers are suffering, clearly, and they say so, um, yet they're still supporting Trump. And people keep asking why. And people who know the community and know farmers say, well, that will begin to change uh, when they start losing their farms. That uh, farming is historically been cyclical, not cyclical, but it has its ups and downs. There are always going to be bad years. Uh, this was a bad year for weather-wise uh, as well as trade-wise. And so farmers over the years have learned, you know, you have to go with the flow on this. But, uh, you know, when the bank gets their farm and they're dispossessed, that is and radical that, change. Right. And it's always toughest on younger farmers because they have the highest leverage. Farmers who are older tend to own their their land, which means they're less exposed to a downturn uh, in terms of in terms of the fixed costs of, of running the place. So it it is it's doubly difficult for farm communities because you have the general uh, effect of lower lower prices and lower lower volume, uh, but then you start to lose the very people you want to keep in the community, which is your young farmers. Right. So have uncertainty on the farmer's front and obviously on the goods front with all the tariffs that are floating around here. But now there's some additional uncertainty on the financial front of the U.S.-China relationship. And this is a story that we've talked about before where I think it was a few weeks ago or maybe last month there were rumors about the administration considering a sort of financial decoupling from China, making it more difficult for U.S. uh, investors to invest uh, in China, and also there are concerns uh, floating around about the inability for U.S. authorities to audit Chinese companies uh, that trade on U.S. stock exchanges. It seems like the administration has shelved uh, some of those discussions or at least kicked the can. And uh, because of that, Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, who's quite outspoken on China issues, has introduced legislation that would block U.S. government pensions from investing in Chinese stocks. Scott, what does that really mean? Well, as often happens with uh, our elected officials, um, the press release is sort of less than meets the eye. And uh, this is, uh, well, what what Senator Rubio is proposing restrictions on one of the several funds within the thrift savings plan. The thrift savings plan is is essentially the government or federal workers 401k plans. Okay, that's just the name of it. Um, but and he is he has proposed changes to one of several of these letter funds that that federal employees and retirees can choose to invest in. What he's chosen is the one that is basically an emerging markets fund. Think of it as if you were buying a mutual fund asset or a 401k asset uh, and you you wanted a, a mutual fund in the emerging markets, it would be the equivalent of the I the I fund. Uh, but the what what's missed in the press release and is very important in this case is it's tiny amount of money. So per perspective, total pension assets for government workers, federal, state, and local, is about $4 trillion. That's total pension assets under management. The, the thrift savings plan, which is one element, federal only, and sort of the con- it's a contributory element of the federal pension pr- structure. So TSP, all TSP, has $560 billion under management. The TSP I fund is 5% of that. So $30 billion out of $560 billion total TSP and $4 trillion total 
total government employee pensions, uh, retiree pensions. So, so, so if you're a civil servant, should this bill really worry you? Well, it, it, nobody's using this fund, not nobody, but it is a small allocation of the typical federal uh, contributor, federal participant today. Two thirds of the money is in either government bonds or something that mimics U.S. Uh, traded companies like the S&P 500. I was in that. I was in the TSP when I was in the government, and I eventually took my money out because I got annoyed with them. But they've done a good job in recent years of, of diversifying the options for federal employees. In the, in the beginning, uh, there were only two. Uh, mm-hmm. One that followed a, you know, a, a market index, uh, S&P 500, or some regular normal index, and another one that was government securities, basically. Yeah. And those were the only two choices. And now there are more choices. And so it really does approximate the kind of 401k that a lot of Americans are, uh, are in. This particular issue, though, is, is not, is not going to go away because you know, what, what, they're, what they're saying or what Rubio is saying is that the, the fund in question was going to use an index that included Chinese securities. Mm-hmm. And that's what, that's what he was objecting to. Uh, one of the dilemmas this poses, and I went through this in a slightly different context when I was running a, the National Foreign Trade Council, is, um, is the pension fund managers have a fiduciary duty, uh, which uh, really is to maximize returns. They act in the best interest of the, best, the shareholders. Best interest of the shareholders. When you start injecting non-economic criteria uh, into the decision-making process, you were basically forcing them to breach their fiduciary duty. We ran into this when the NFTC, uh, this is a short digression, but it's an interesting story. We sued Illinois because Illinois had passed legislation relating to um, state pension funds, state uh, fire department and police and teacher fund uh, pension funds in Illinois. And there was not just one. There were, every little community had its own fund, but they were all regulated by the state. And they passed legislation at the time that said you couldn't invest in any fund that um, uh, did business with companies that were doing business in Sudan. It was a human rights thing. Uh, Not that different, I think, from some of Rubio's motivation. That sounds like a noble thing to do. Uh, It passed the legislature. Uh, When you looked into it, and this – this comment is unique to that time and those funds. This is not a general statement. But we discovered that basically there were 29 funds that uh, – 29 mutual funds that these pension funds were allowed to invest in by uh, subject to state regulation. And of those 29, there was only one uh, that met the criteria of the statute. Um, and its return was at that time about half – of what the rate of ret- the average rate of return for the others was, so basically what the state of Illinois was saying to the teachers and the fire department uh, and and the police was, you know, we're going to make you t- accept a lower return because we're pursuing this foreign uh, human rights objective. Uh, one of our complaints was nobody asked. Nobody asked the police whether they thought that was a good idea. Now, there may be some who would say, sure, I will accept less money because I think this is a moral imperative. My suspicion is there were probably more people who say, who would say, you know, enforce your moral imperative a different way. Don't take it out of my pocket. That's an important point in, in, that's unmentioned in this story. Yes. Because like Illinois, you, the first question is, whose money is it? Sure. The answer is it's TSP plan participants' money. 
All right, and somebody ought to consult with them. It's not the state's money. It's right. not the state's money. It's not. not it's not. Money. It's not the Fed's money. Okay. Also, look, it's a trivial allocation, but it's actually it's actually pretty good uh, risk management. All right? I mean, we don't give investment advice on the show, but uh, but finding out that five percent good thing too. Yeah, that's a good thing. But finding out that five only five percent of assets are in the emerging market funds first sounds very sensible and, and totally consistent with good diversification practices. So obviously users are making those decisions and uh, and at minimum should be consulted, but Bill's absolutely right about the fiduciary obligation on the, the fund managers in this case. Right. So, you know, just to be clear, Rubio's justification here is, quote, to ensure that federal retirement savings can never be a source of wealth funding the Chinese Communist Party at the expense of our nation's future prosperity. And, you know, Agree or disagree, it does seem as though this conversation about uh, U.S. financial linkages to China in a variety of aspects, that conversation is not going away anytime soon. And so, you know, do you think that some of these proposals will gain uh, legs going forward and there will be a type of financial decoupling that we're seeing on the traditional trade side? It seems to me like that opens up a huge can of worms with a lot of unpredictable consequences uh, just Look, because it, of it, it, leveraging. It and certainly, certainly could get much worse than it is. It's not very bad now. We still have an open investment policy as a, as a nation, and that's good for Americans. In this particular case, I think uh, Senator Rubio should, should do with his TSP assets whatever he thinks is right. And before he acts on the behalf of others, he ought to consult with the owners. Let me add, though, and, and you alluded to this, uh, Jack, when you began, there are other issues on the table here, and it appears that uh, this particular bill may have some legs because I think there's some sympathy for it inside the administration, and it's a regulatory matter. I mean, they, you don't need to pass a, a law to do this. The, the administration can just have the TSP program, you know, yeah, that, that's a, that's not a do that. Right. Independent so agency that is- that's what kicked off the legislation. The Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board was examining this issue, and then they kicked the can for two weeks, and Rubio got yeah, they're a- not antsy. Doing, they're not and, doing what he wants. Yeah. But they could do what he wants. And so it's, it's a relatively simple thing. The thing the, the, what I thought they were going to do, because there's a much longer history, and I think better justification, was to have the SEC delist the companies that were not complying with U.S. audit and transparency requirements. It's delisting Chinese companies that trade yeah. on U.S. stocks. and exchanges. this is not a new issue. We've been fighting with the Chinese about this probably for at least 10 years, and it, it goes back through at least the Obama administration, if not the Bush administration. Uh, you know, if you're going to be registered on American stock exchanges— If you want to be listed, you got to follow the rules of listing. There are rules, and yeah. those rules include allowing auditors in to examine, uh, examine the internal papers, of, of the company, and there are transparency requirements, and the Chinese government has maintained consistently that, uh, as a matter of sovereignty, uh, their companies are required to refuse to let U.S. auditors do that. And this has been the source of uh, negotiation between the two countries for a long time. We have an organization in the United States called the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, PCAOB. Uh, and were charged with this, and they spent a long time negotiating, thought they'd work something out. Uh, it turns out I think they, they really didn't hmm. uh, satisfactorily. And, and patience has kind of run out on this because the Chinese really are outliers to what are normal requirements that all American companies have to meet. Uh, I'm kind of waiting for that shoe to drop because it's so obvious. And it's, to be clear, not an anti-China mechanism. It is a requirement of anybody who wants access, essentially, to 
American capital markets. Sure. And last question on the financial issue. I mean, what ammunition do the Chinese have here? If we were to do something like delist the number of Chinese companies, prohibit uh, civil servants from putting pension plan money into the in, into emerging markets like China, how would China respond? Well, on the pension fund, they probably wouldn't notice because it's so small. It's trivial. Yeah. Uh, if we started delisting companies, including big ones, that they would notice. Uh, they might retaliate. I think not through. Uh, they might retaliate by limiting uh, U.S. financial services activity in China directly. Uh, taking away license, licenses they've granted, things yes. like that. Or affecting other reform issues that are already being negotiated otherwise. Sure. Okay. We'll keep watching that one. Now, switching gears, uh, no pun intended, uh, to USMCA <laughs> and automobiles, there's- oh, That uh, is a pun. <laughs> everybody's <laughs> well favorite done. topic. Uh, and this is, this is kind of a complicated story, but I think it's an important one. There's- reporting this week about USMCA and uh, auto rules of origin and the way that those rules are administered. And, you know, rules of origin essentially are rules in a trade agreement that say how much of a product has to be made within the free trade zone or between the free trade parties or the free trade agreement parties in order for that product to qualify for preferential treatment for duty-free trade, right? And the auto rules in USMCA are I would say extremely complicated, uh, having spent some time looking at them. Well, both far more complicated than NAFTA rules. Yes. NAFTA rules was a straight 62.5%. Yes. Yes. 62.5% of the vehicle NAFTA content had to be made in 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 Canada, US, or Mexico. Correct. Yeah. And they've moved to a 75% and uh, added an element called the labor value added to the calculation, which makes makes the, the accounting and therefore the compliance uh, challenges much greater. Yeah. And so without going into all all of the details, they've added a labor element. They've added different rules for uh, different materials and different parts uh, and different aspects of the vehicle. And then there are different ways for each company to meet uh, those layered requirements, essentially, right? And so there's a provision in the USMCA that lays out a transition period. So auto companies that have a more difficult time meeting the new complicated rules can have basically a phased in period where uh, they can work with USTR to lay out essentially a business plan mm-hmm. uh, that uh, you know will get them to the rule of origin eventually. And in the meantime, they can continue to trade uh, automobiles within North America duty-free. And the concern is that the rules, uh, that is that really there aren't many transparent rules about how those transition plans would be approved or would work, right? And so what is what is the implication there? Well, let's, for the rules themselves, I think this is, we see, and we see this a lot in today's world, we were applying sort of 1980s managed trade ideas to the 2019 reality, which in reality is quite different. It's much more complicated. Where where anything is made is a lot more complicated today than it was in 1980. And the USMCA rules 
were known to be more restrictive. They were, they were, uh, it was announced in advance by the auto industry's think tank, the, the Center for Automotive Research, that the, those rules would first make automobiles in North America more expensive for consumers, and second, they would make, them, make U.S. produced automa- automobiles less competitive in export markets. So th- this, was, this was known pri- during the negotiations. Same thing our study concluded. Which is, yeah, which yes. is actually sort of common knowledge. There is an additional issue that I think is making this even more complicated, which is companies, in order to qualify for the preference, as you mentioned, which is 2.5% on cars, 25% on trucks. So the, that to qualify for that preference, you have to have a compliance structure in place and be able to demonstrate that your product complies with the rules. Now, in you know, let's say 30 years ago, when NAFTA was being negotiated uh, and being considered, and the auto rule then that time 62.5 percent was being considered, all the automakers, the auto assemblers in North America, had large compliance staffs in house, large organizations, and there was a lot of work done. This is not a trivial task. One of the things that's happened, though, as services delivery has changed and the companies themselves, the assemblers themselves, have changed, is very few companies, even large ones, have compliance staff in-house anymore. Now, so you're moving to a more complicated rule, one that requires fairly delicate and sophisticated calculations on labor value added, which is is not easy to do in the first place, and there's no habits, and there's no there are no regulations to point to of how we've done it in the past. <clears throat> you can't even cr- create a decent safe safe harbor for 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 the for the compliance people. Plus, those compliance people are no longer company employees, and and are are in some removed remote facility as a contractor or supplier to the assembler. So this is really a it's a non-trivial task. I have no idea how people are going to do it. it. And we've often talked on the show, how much do you actually put up with for a 2.5% preference? Right. And uh, that's that's the question I hope somebody's thinking about, but maybe nobody is. And the story that you alluded to in the beginning that came out today suggests that the government is proposing language that would give them very intrusive authority to tell companies where to build and I guess what to build, which is – uh, I mean, it's very odd for Republican administration because it's classic industrial policy. Yes. I mean, it comes close to, uh, in some ways, nationalizing the, the industry. I can't believe they're going to be able to sell this to the Congress. Um, but uh, uh, well, we'll see. It also raises the question of, of uh, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I keep running into, we, we, when you mess with the market – Odd things happen, mm-hmm. you know. And why why USTR knows more about how the auto industry should be constructed than they do uh, baffles me. Yeah, now I've been thinking about this in the context of say twenty years of trade negotiations. I cannot imagine any U.S. negotiator even giving a, a minute's notice to some other country who tabled a proposal like this about putting those kinds of burdens on our manufacturers. We wouldn't tolerate it for a second. Sure. And yet we're doing it to our own manufacturers. And I'm just, I'm confused about why they think this is a better way to do it. Uh, at first I was, at least at least I, they, they seem to agree that they don't have the statutory authority to do it now because they're seeking that authority in the uh, in the, the implementing bill for USMCA. But this uh, this looks messy and I think what it will do is ultimately People will just pay the tariff, build the car the way they want, they want to build it, and uh, life goes on. Yeah, it would be very odd for the Mexican government, for example, to tell a company like GM that they have to build 
another engine plant in in Mexico in or, order or for the, them or, to qualify the, for a the, rule of the, origin. Their transition right? plans are subject to approval by the government. Yeah, that's crazy. People would be setting their hair on fire it's, over something like it's that. A but here preference. It's, it's an incentive. You either you either do what you t- what it takes to to qualify for the incentive, or you don't. Right. Well, I think the issue is that it should be black and white. As you said, you you either qualify or you don't. And now there's a level of subjectivity, shall we say, that folks are becoming very wary about. Yes, we should we should get get the Nobel Prize to whoever the compliance person is who actually figures out how to manage these rules in the first place. It's going to be a heroic task. Indeed. Um, so we'll stay tuned on that and obviously more to come on the next episode. Always more to come. To our listeners, If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.